I'm David Bishop, author of Metagility, and this is the Agile Uprising Podcast. Greetings. Welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. I'm your host again, Jay Hersko. Join with me once again. I have a whole panel. We have Mr. Mike Cadell or uh, Mike Cadell after dark. I'm going to put that disclaimer out there now. <laughs> Howdy, y'all. We have Jonathan Schneider, uh, fresh from Savannah, Georgia. Hey, hey. And we have Shira Lehman. Shira, longtime listener, first time caller. Is that correct? Yes, sir. <laughs> Fantastic. So what are we talking about this week, people? So this week, we're going to discuss a blog post that I forgot who came across it, but it got shared across our Discord server. And it generated enough conversation that we figured it was worth a full recorded episode. Uh, the post is from Dave Heinemeyer Hansen. I hope I got his name right. I think he's one of the co-founders of Basecamp 37 Signals, mm-hmm. along with Jason Freed. Uh, he had a post put out on May 25th, which I will link in the show notes. And the title, which is kind of heretical, Manage Process Before People. So... I know Mike and I are uh, ex-Waterfall PMs. I know Shira dips her toe into the project management space. I know John's done some work as well. So when I first saw this, it jumped out at me and the four people on this episode, the four people who responded and said, well, that's kind of an interesting take. So I'm going to start with you, Mike. What did you think of this, of his argument about why process should be the thing you concentrate on over people? which is goes antithetical to 99% of all the stuff that we read, listen, hear, talk about. Yeah. Well, um, first thought is you have to question the validity of 99% of the stuff that we read and hear and talk about. Um, <laughs> just to be be fair. True. Uh, but uh, what, what DHH is getting at in, in this article, you know, as it occurs to me, is that if you have solid process that values people and treats people with respect, then you don't need people to, quote, be their manager, because in in many uh, circumstances, people are put into, quote, manager roles to um, compensate for the dysfunctional way that organizations are, are structured and operate. What did you think, John? I have so many thoughts, so I'm going to try and start off with saying it. Uh, I I understand the sentiment similar to Mike. Like, it really depends on how you actually see managers and their roles and your in perspective on it. Because I can definitely be empathetic to the point of, oh, well, more managers must be bad because that just means more overhead and more complications for people. Like, I think that's kind of what the article sort of implying it, that, you know, you want more workers that are self-organizing and autonomous. Like, sure, all those great buzzwords that we all know about. But when you look at the surface of what how they're portraying it and they're kind of saying how you want to be liked because managers are a bad thing, well, then that makes me my head tilt on, well, what are they doing? Because, you know, if they're just managing people and doing operations, like, yeah, then I agree with the article. But then I'd say then you need to reboot and fix your managers more than just do process driven approach. But once again, situational, right? I can't just make grand statements and assume it's the same thing. But yeah, that, I mean, that was my first initial reaction. You know, Shira. 
I was just thinking about it from the perspective of like, okay, how would the, what would this look like on, at my job, at what my team is doing? And the processes, that's the, like the number one struggle. They, I'm a BSA, but they put me as a scrum lead for this team because they just don't have enough scrum leads. So I'm doing both. And that's the one thing we struggle with is getting them to do the processes and the things that they're supposed to be doing. And in a perfect world, if they had already been doing all of this, yeah, it would be great. But I think putting that into practice is easier said than done. I think I think you're touching on an interesting point where context is the most important part of this article, right? You need to view it through the context of Basecamp and 37 Signals. And 37 Signals has admitted that they have somewhere around 100 employees, right? Somewhere around 100. Yeah. So with 100 employees, um, and I'm not saying that the process before people argument is wrong. We're going to get to that when it comes to enterprise and where that comes in. But I do think there is a nuance to be had where a smaller company that's well below, well in the Dunbar range, like not even close to, you know, the, the maximum in the Dunbar sequence, it's probably easier to get by with less managers because you have more of those human connections. What was, what was his analogy, Mike? Um, the, the Dunbar sequence, it's your, your close friends is five. 15 is a night out at the bar. 50 was a barbecue. And then 150 was a funeral or a wedding, right? That was yeah. his article. So if you think about this number, somewhere between a barbecue and a, and a wedding, right? I mean, there's enough people that you have at least a somewhat one-on-one -on -one connection that I, I think you can get by with without as many managers. Um, but they did, I mean, he does have some interesting, so DHH actually talks us through the principles and how they work at 37 Singles. And some of the principles I actually thought were kind of fascinating. The first one that jumped out at me, or the first one he lists was, they replaced the DSU with automated questions. Jay, Jay, wait a minute. Wait, did you just use a three-letter acronym for the Daily Scrum? No, 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 no. It's uh, uh, DHH is his name. I didn't say DSU. I thought you did. Never mind. Did I? Yeah, I heard that yeah. too. Sorry. Oh man, man um, Jay, I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> man, I'm, I'm heartbroken. You uh, went down the rabbit hole. All right, who invited Mike after dark? Okay, um. So he does, he, he, he replaces, they replace the stand up with a, a set of automated questions. And what are you going to work on? What did you work on today? I mean, I don't, Jonathan thoughts. I don't necessarily think that's the worst thing in the world, especially if you're, if there's enough transparency around the work being done mm -hmm. that you don't really need to, okay, everybody get up, log into the zoom, you know, what do you think? Yeah. And this one's this one's once again context matters so i'll just answer off both sides of my mouth like if you are having um if you're in an organization and by the way it's not always bad to hear this uh for example my uh my significant other works in an area where there's turnover where she has new employees coming in monthly now she deals with hourly workers it's a distribution center so their onboarding and stuff they do is ridiculously high so when you have things like hey, we have people coming in and out or contractors or people. Yeah, buttoning up these questions and making it muscle memory and drilling it in. And like, I could absolutely see value in that uh, because it drives the mindset and behavior. But I am personally in my own role, though, I have people that I've worked with for three years or more. And the, like, if I started to drill these and keep doing it, they honestly go nuts and they want to be more creative and use the time as they see effective and some of these questions naturally come out not in a uh, dogmatic way at the same time, at the same place every time. So like they would actually make it their own. So I see both sides where, yeah, foundationally and mature wise, I get it. 
uh, early on. But after that, you'd actually frustrate a team and hold them back more. Mike, agree, disagree? A um, <clears throat> little different perspective. Uh, think back to the origin of this practice of a daily standup. What's, what's the, the reason? Why do it? What's the benefit? What are we trying to get done? I kind of uh, I kind of understand that like having automated questions and just putting them in because right now the team I have their daily scrum is um, not exactly like that but very close to it because yeah. all the developers are in India but the lead engineers in California yeah. so they have their daily scrum there they record it and then as people wake up across the globe in other locations they'll watch it and then know what yeah. everybody else is working on. And, and the people who aren't on that call will put it into the chat in the same meetings yeah. call. So yeah. we kind of do a combination of that. And I could see the validity in having just that. But I think the combination of it is also good. Yeah, Mike, so, I think your question's spot on, though. Like, are you doing it because you were told to do it? Or do you know why you do it? Yeah. So uh, having been taught Scrum way, 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 way back, um, the purpose, uh, if you, current day scrum guide will reinforce this in in a scrum context the purpose of a daily uh, scrum is for the team to align um, their efforts and coordinate how they're going to work together that day to make progress towards their goal right much different than answering three wrote questions so where 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 i land on it is what does that team need and what is in best service of that team? Um, the, the three questions or two questions or however many you want, doing them asynchronously, like kind of the, the um, approach that Shira mentioned is brilliant it, because it doesn't create um, a, uh, a, a barrier around times and time zones. And if people can consume things and, and you, you can gain a share context asynchronously, um, which, which is a, a very valid thing. What you, what you forfeit in that is the timeliness and the, the power of that group uh, swarming together, if you will, for, for a day to figure out how to help each other. And you also miss a little, you lose out on some of the uh, uh, sense of cohesion and camaraderie that comes with it. You can achieve those things other ways. Those things may not be important for you. Uh, as you said at the outset, context matters greatly. <laughs> so um, I, you know, I, I've, I've coached and worked with teams that say, no, we're, we don't need a daily, daily scrum. And uh, you know, again, using you know, Shira's example, they're spread all over time, you know, time zones. I've worked, worked with you know, alleged teams <laughs> that I'm are in... Alleged teams. I like India. There, you have people in India, in uh, Eastern Europe, in uh, England, in East Coast US, uh, Mountain Time, and Pacific Time. And coordinating that, and then occasionally we'd have some folks from the Philippines. So, putting all that together and trying to force fit that into the mold of we need to get together to answer these three daily questions was just stupid. And we didn't do it. We did asynchronous coordination and we accepted the limitation that our collaboration was not going to be as rich because we didn't, it, that, and that's not a function of the three questions or this or the that, it's a 
function of how the team was was uh, distributed across the globe. Um, so yeah. you know, no judgment on it. It's just, you know, different circumstances require different solutions. We have recurring meetings for the entire team in addition to their daily scrum that they do. And like we have twice a week where everybody joins and we have it at a time where everybody across the globe can join. <laughs> Yep. And we record them. And that's where they do their deep dives, their collaborations, and all of that stuff. But we know ahead of time what we're going to talk about in these meetings because we all watch their daily scrum recording and we all keep up to date on those uh, in the same chat where the recording is saved. Yeah. And what DHH mentions in this in this article is um, it uh, allows people um, within the team and out, outside the team to, to be aware or in the loop, as they say on what someone's working on. So th this is a, a good illustration of how you can create shared context asynchronously. And that's what that's what this is doing. And you know what? It's different than synchronous context. Um, who's to say what's good or bad? It does make me think of, um, I just finished, and Mike and I were talking about this, the book Rational Ritual. And I think we're probably going to do an episode of deep dive on it. I, I learned more about the importance of ceremonies, right? Mm -hmm. After reading that book and then why they're so important and how to, yeah. how to solve these coordination problems. I really, really, we'll get, we'll dive into that. But the idea of the DSU is meant to create some common knowledge, which solves yeah, your coordination yeah. problem. If you can create that and not be in a room. Okay. Well, if you don't get a meeting, if you can free up times on people's calendars to create the I know that you know and you know that I know that you know, okay, great, great. Yeah. yeah. Um, next one, John, I'm going to go to you. I want to get your thoughts on this because you're very close to the product world. He he, he talks about how they do, uh, and I do have the shape up book back here somewhere. Uh, they do six week cycles, two week cool downs. What what were your thoughts on that? And especially, what are your thoughts on that compared to some of the PI planning? stuff yeah and once again this is one of those things where it's like you know good for you like it makes sense for your business and, and that's kind of the way that i usually like to approach all these things with you know what's the right cycle how often should we release how does it work for the business continuity and planning i've been in areas and i'm sure other people in the audience have too where um they the customers actually want a software or a product that almost never changes and if it does it's because of like security or something really egregious but uh, financial systems or financial software is a good example, where like if you push an update to a software to a finance accounting software system, they never want that thing to change. They're like, dude, please leave it alone for 20 years. If it works, do not touch it. And then you have the polar opposite extreme, obviously, that everyone's aware of where, you know, these fintech companies and financial, um, I'm sorry, FANG companies are pushing, you know, every 13 seconds and like just changing production like crazy. And there's releases like nuts. And so my point is, is like, yeah, if you want high, good quality context and it makes sense with your business value propositions to do a six week cycle and do two weeks and it's a good, healthy balance. And remember the context of the, the article, right? And 37 signals, like that size of that company for what they do and for the value they produce to customers, like that makes sense. It's a good flow. Um, so that's kind of my approach to that. But to, to add a little more spice to this, it's actually interesting too. Like they they kind of show how they do these six week cycles that make sense. I, I would dig more. I didn't dig into it, but I would be curious to dig into those six weeks to be like, 
okay, what is actually going on like in terms of research, UX design, the solution, the architecture? Because sometimes that's a misleading statement where there's actually architecture and work and things happening before the six weeks. Right. And so they gaslight you a little bit. <laughs> so it's not really six weeks. So yeah. just keep it's that the in the context. It's the, nuance. it's the nuance of the actual process yeah. and operating the system. I, I do, however, the idea of their two-week cooldowns and the idea of, okay, we've just now sprinted ran. Yeah, I actually like that. Take take a beat, take a moment, do some planning, yeah. do some thinking. Um, what's the term I came across? I want, I need to have a think. That's <laughs> me. I would, if somebody ever said that to me, I, what are you, a Vulcan? Um, but I, I, I think that also, you know, it, it reiterates the point that you can't go pedal to the metal yes. 24, you know, 40 hours a week, 52 weeks a year. You just can't. You can't. You're going to yeah. kill your people. You're going to kill your orn. You need to come off a bit to yes. gain gains. You know, you need to take all, you can't sprint the whole race, right? No, you're right. And the last thing I'll say to that too, and I, I'm glad you mentioned the two week cooldown. Uh, the fact that they actually dedicate the two weeks as a time, like a whole is, is important because I see a lot of people that are like, oh, we'll put 10% of your capacity to innovation. And I'm like, yeah, that's. It happens. It, I've tried, it never happens. Mike, have you ever no. seen it happen? Have you ever seen it happen where someone says, oh, we're going to carve off, we're going to do capacity Tetris, right? Shout out to Brandy Olson, right? And her book on flow. We're going to do capacity Tetris, Mike. You get 35% of your time on this project, 45% of your time on that project, and then X amount of percent time for improvement and innovation. Does that really work? I've seen one case where they actually had the discipline to measure that, and they were doing maybe a quarter of their allocated um, innovation and continuous improvement time to the uh, planned uh, category of work. It it's um, I would say it's a very rare exception if it does happen. And um, the, underneath that is the way that is presented here. You know, six week cycle, two week cooldown. If you look at uh, uh, look at uh, safe the scale agile framework. They have the innovation and planning sprint is a similar concept. Um, <clears throat> you know, gone are the days of that innovation planning sprint being the uh, hardening sprint. Yeah, right. They've, they've moved out away from that, fortunately. Um, but uh, it what what's always problematic when it's trying to explain the idea of the innovation and planning sprint is the visceral reaction to what do you mean you're not doing work for two whole oh. weeks. We could That's do a the, whole episode yeah. on overcoming yeah. objections to the IP sprint. Like we could literally do it. It might be yeah. like six hours. We'll have people calling in after it started and say, I have feelings because. <laughs> just start a radio show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, you're on the air. Yeah. Agile with Jay, you're on the air. But I, I do yeah. think that's that's a, a whole topic in and of itself, overcoming yeah. that. And I, and no offense to anyone. It's a, it's a mental block. It's a, yeah. it's a mental stumbling block that you, you yeah. need to unlearn what you think about capacitization to relearn, to say, yeah. oh, we need yeah. it. And it, it's, it's rooted more often than not in, in fear. <laughs> but to, to John's point um, and your point, Jay, about you know, that uh, you know, we're going to you know, take our 10% of uh, time for innovation and spread it out over the you know, mid-range time box. Why that doesn't happen is, uh, it, or why that approach is taken, I should say, frequently, in my experience, 
is because it's a way to give lip service to the idea, but not confront the reality that we are taking mm -hmm. um, time to investing time in getting better and getting faster at what we do. Um, so, and and it, it it Jay, it all comes back to biology and, and yeah. human nature. Yep. Here By the go. way, quick quick funny story to that. Um, there was a company at one point that wanted to push a learn, grow, and go program where they wanted everyone to allocate 10% of their time toward learning. And for six months, every single individual, and I'm telling every single individual contributor said, Yeah, no, none of that ever happens. We never have time. It's just for show. And so I actually went to leadership and said, do you truly believe in this? And they went, absolutely, we want to do. So I said, great, we're going to make every team that when they sprint plan, the first thing they do is plan learning items in the backlog and claim their time. Immediately there was backpedaling because then they realized how much work was actually getting put in sprints that lowered their capacity. And they actually, yeah, it was an awkward conversation. <laughs> so. it's, I, I think you're both, you and Mike are touching on the whole there's it's talking the talk and walking the walk it's proving what's actually going on behind the scenes you know yeah shout out to training day it's the movie i quote the most it's not what you know it's what you can prove um i think that those those things um they throw a big a big magnifying glass on what people think is happening uh, what is it the, the way the way the process is designed the way the process is described, the way the process actually gets done, like all three of these things are, are the way it's documented, they're all completely different. Um, there was another, there was another uh, thing that he calls out here this year. I wanted to ask you about this because I think out of all of us, you're, you're the most recent in your role. He talks yeah. about how um, the review of work for new employees and how they, they specifically assign that to a mentoring peer. So they have someone who's senior staff, um, a senior staff member serves as a mentor for a single person. <clears throat> and then the mentors are given responsibility to say, you know, if, if she was my mentor, you, you are the one responsible for making sure my work quality is of, is of, of, a, of what you're expecting. Right. Um, does this make sense? And do you, do you, and, and more, do you think this is actually possible in a company of a larger size, that whole idea? So I, I love that idea. And my now boss, not the one who I started with, um, she, the first thing she did was set me up with two mentors. We met every week. Now it's every two weeks. And that was the most helpful thing ever. Cause I, I got to know them and then I feel comfortable asking questions and, um, it just really helped me get more comfortable in my role and learn the correct processes and procedures and stuff. And, um, is that feasible in a bigger company? I think it depends on who um, the management is. Because like I said, my new boss, that's the first thing she did. My previous boss was like, sit there and read all these uh, confluence pages and I'll get to you eventually, you know? So like, it really depends on if the person who is in charge is invested in the employees that way, you know? Great way to put it. Great way to put it. Uh, I, I'm sure... John's hired people. I think Mike has hired people. We've all had the instance of where we had to hire people and we're paying them to sit around because the hardware isn't ready. The network access isn't ready. They don't have rights to this. They're still trying to figure out that. Um, now, I do think the other extreme is the extreme of, hey, you start a job at Etsy at 9 a.m. and by 1030, you're pushing code into production. I think that's maybe a little bit delusion to grandeur, right? I, I think for them it works, but I also think that... Um, 
I have seen some catastrophically bad software engineers. I mean, that's, I yeah, that's, that's another right. problem, yeah. you know, like I'm on a team right now that R4 is their last release and the team's getting disbanded. So they don't even have any motivation to put any good practices and processes into place. So it's an uphill battle for me as a scrum lead, you know, it's like I got them to record and like collaborate on uh, their daily standup, but the engineer in uh, California wasn't even aware they were doing a standup every day. Like, I had to say, okay, we need to do a daily standup. And then they said, oh, we already do that. And uh, some people on the team were like, oh, we do. <laughs> so it's like a lot of uh, people not communicating and not being aware of what the processes are. But like I said, it depends on who is running the team. And if they have a timestamp on the team, like the people aren't going to be very motivated to do any of this stuff. You know, it's like, why do we have to now like start story pointing with the entire team when we used to do it with just the developers working on the story you know and like why are we bothering to do this when this project is ending in three months you know mike yeah so kind of kind of um uh reinforcing and picking piggybacking easy for me to say um off what Cher was just saying um you know can can the the process about uh of having mentoring peers um, review the work of new employees, um, I, I cannot work in larger organizations. You know, I'll use the quote at scale, which I've come to hate um, <clears throat> the term because it's overloaded. Oh, but can it work in large corporations with lots of people? And I'll offer a, a slightly um, uh, maybe controversial answer is it's the, that is the only way to effectively bring new people into the, the work and the work culture of an organization, regardless of the size. So um, there's, a, there's a benefit of having someone who's a you know, roughly a peer be, uh, being the person who's helping and onboarding a new person because it takes away much of the power dynamic. So if I'm looking to the person who's my quote boss, I'm going to be much less likely to ask questions as I'm learning things because I'm afraid I'm going to, uh, I'm going to look like a schmuck who doesn't know what he's doing. Um, I do that in many other ways. So, you know, no, no name. <laughs> I don't need help besmirching my own name. Yeah. But the, um, the, the idea of, um, uh, of peers mentoring um, really is effective. The, the firm that I work in, we, we do that. We, we hire every year, we hire a couple uh, new college grads. And um, what, uh, what we've recently started doing is having the new college grads work on an engagement with a senior person. And that senior person is responsible for mentoring that new college grad and helping that person understand what we do and why we do it. And um, the, the, the potential for the peer-to-peer -peer learning is fantastic. And the added benefit is it keeps the senior people a little more on their toes, being able, having to explain to someone why we do something, um, you know, kind of keeps you on your toes. And maybe you go, yeah, you know, this is the way we do it. And, you know, we, we're, we're considering doing something different, which is a code for saying, we do this now and this is stupid, I just realized. So we're gonna, I'm gonna try to change it. Um, so, uh, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to take us a little bit off to the side. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you this, Jonathan, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, we, we've talked about 
management, right? With specifically, which is the oversight of people who work in your company. Um, typically, a lot of companies have people who are managers, but are also responsible for delivery of something, right? So they are they are simultaneously an individual contributor and a manager. Good idea, yes or no? Yeah, the concept of working managers is uh, always a spicy thing that uh, a lot of leaders love to have because once you get a taste of it, it's like a, a thing of dopamine where they're like, oh, wow, look how much more efficient. And they're probably someone who did this in the past who got promoted because they were so good at it. And uh, it's funny you say managers. Heck, I know a lot of people that are working directors and working executives even that fall into this trap. And um, I say trap because on average and normally these people that continue to do this in the lack of their good people, leadership and strategy succeed by showing their individual contributions. And, and uh, it's unfortunate because if uh, other leaders or peers see this happening, what they should call out is, is that's a really good individual contributor that needs their career or organizational design fixed because that person is probably not in the right spot to be best optimized. That's the way it should be viewed. Um, there's no harm or shame. And because uh, this actually is another thing, uh, a lot of people in the food and restaurant industry will say nothing's better than a manager who knows if they're short staff, they can roll their sleeves up and help the employees and the employees love it. Right. So there's a little bit of that too there where if uh, you know, if you're on a late software development deployment and it's going wrong and the manager hops on and just helps facilitate, like teams love that managers care and do some of that stuff. So I have to be careful to say it's not always bad, but when they're doing it as their primary thing, yeah, I, I would course correct it. I I, I am I have a, in my own experience, I've done both. I've been just a manager. I've also been a manager who's also an IC. I've been just an IC. And I I am, unless I am an aberration, I strongly, I strongly think that you can't have a manager who you're also tasking with delivery, right? Is there's, I go back to, I forget what book it was. They talk about there's two kinds of people in an organization. There's the people that manage the value, the delivery of value, right? So this is your developers, your software engineers, your testers. But there's the people who manage delivery of value. And there's the people who manage the people who deliver value. I think my, I'm of the personal opinion that when you start crossing the streams, you're doing two jobs equally badly. And then when you have multiple directs, the number of directs increases. And then, I mean, what is the, what is your raison d'etre, right? To being there. Are you, am I there to make John Shearer and Mike better to support them and get them to grow? Or am I there to deliver the widget? Because if I have to do both, somebody's getting short shrifted at a certain point. Again, now we're back to not capacity Tetris, but area of focus Tetris. Mike. So what you, the point of view you just articulated, Jay, makes a lot of sense in the context of what we know as manager management roles and duties in a typical corporate structure. Uh, what what um, DHH uh, advocates here, whether that is um, scalable to tens of thousands of people is, is a, a, a follow-on discussion. But what he's advocating here is that the role of manager is so much lighter weight that you can you can effectively do value creating work direct value creating work 
and be the be the manager because it doesn't take a whole lot of time, focus, energy, and effort in the way that that um, uh, his companies are set up. So, so that there's a, a bit of a, a finer point uh, underneath that, and I, I'm not naive enough to say that yeah, this would could work at you know global bank, global insurance company with you know forty eight thousand people. Don't know. Gonna guess maybe not, but could it be? Could something more like this and less like what we? what most organizations work with today be effective uh, hypothesis. Yes. would love to have a chance to prove that out. <laughs> it, very true. I mean, um, th there's the, the scale thing that comes to play. The other thing, the other aspect of management that we're not talking about is the Jonathan is an amazing web UI developer. He is so amazing that we're, we're going to promote him into management. Yeah, so because John's a great employee. Yeah. And then we wonder why John looks like, you know, he goes from having a full head of hair to Mike's head of hair in like six months and we can't figure out why. I mean, we also need to be more. And I think a lot of most companies are getting smarter with this where you do need to have that principal track of someone who is very good at the, the particular skill that they're in. Giving someone a promotion into management because that's your way of recognizing their hard work and taking one of my four comp science major interns, right? Who's been here four years and is really good. And then making them a manager of people when they may not have even taken any management courses. I'm I was just gonna, gonna say like, we get, they give us like a stipend for like classes and stuff related to our work. And my boss's boss uh, mentioned that um, there were some classes at leadership classes at Wharton that he recommended we go for like the the entry level and lower level employees. And I think this is what he's anticipating. So like when we get to that point where, oh, you went from doing dev work to you could be a manager now, at least you have some kind of tools and skills for that, you know? Which is, I mean, that's that's the example of scaling people up, to, scaling people up to get them to be ready. So when, when that opportunity does present itself, if that's your path, you know that they're there. Um, uh, I, but I've I've seen many developers become managers and just so quick hot take. Um, I think it's worse to have a person who shifts to a manager role that's not ideal or good, but is going to figure it out. Um, what's worse than that is actually HR trained person who speaks like a robot and comes off very ungenuine with their employee. Um, I've actually been more irritated and frustrated by a manager who's just reading books like a robot and going through the motions than someone who actually sits down with me and goes, I really don't know what I'm doing. So I'm just going to talk with you and figure it out. Like, I actually like that approach more than someone that's just Very doing true. emotions. Very true. Because yeah, that, that, uh, that's an authentic. Yes, exactly. right, right. That takes all the stress right out of the room because you're like, hey, he's figuring, John's figuring it out. I'm figuring it out. Shira's figuring it out. All three of us are figuring it out together. So we really can't right. get mad at each other because we all know that we're all just trying to figure it out, which is, it, that's a whole different conversation. The, the, you know, the whole bring your whole stuff to work versus the emotional safety versus just authenticity. Right. Um, one of the things I, I forgot to touch on it when I was asking Shira about the whole making an employee uh, as a mentor and having them judge their work. Uh, there was an article, I think I threw it in Discord about the Feynman learning technique from Richard Feynman, where he talks about how the best way to know if you learn something is read a lot about it and then try and explain it to someone else 
And if you can't, you obviously don't know enough. And if you can explain it to someone else, then he says, well, simplify your language, add metaphors, add analogies, make, make it easier to, to, to speak. If I ask Shira, who's my colleague, hey, how do I do this? And she goes, I don't know, this process is completely stupid. I learned a whole lot more by that one off the cuff remark than, than hours to go back to Shira, hours of reading a Confluence page. Um, so I think I think we're actually we're making good on time. So I want to I want to go around the table. Um, the article really was about process and how process with it with a with a well-defined um, feedback loop heavy process. You can get away from having traditional managers. You don't have to worry about managing the people so much. Um, but we also touch on all sorts of things around management and, and just best practices. John, final thoughts, final thoughts. So. To ask the question, should we manage process before people? I think it goes back to, if I had to put a very default generic answer, it's it's hard to structure and lead with process when people need context and reasoning behind the process of why it's there. So I can definitely understand and be empathetic and see value in driving process and having it be established, or as I would just call it, good behaviors and, and mindset, really more than process. Um, but the people have to have context as to why. And that's why I still hesitate and say, we really got to focus on the people to make sure the change management and adoptions there before you just jump in, and just throw stuff at them to be dogmatic. Agreed. Shira. Um, I was just going to say, I think uh, putting processes before people is a, is really uh, nice and whatever, but you have to, like Jonathan said, the context. And also the managers that you do have, you have to make sure they're really invested in your employees and want to manage them in a way where they could be self-sufficient like this. Well said, well said. Uh, Mike. We're fighting biology, Jay. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, uh, it, it's, a, it's a bit of a uh, false dichotomy to, to try to equate one uh, better than the other, one first, whatever, you know, look back at, you know, the Agile Manifesto that, oh, you know, this over that doesn't mean you, you know, um, mm -hmm. you exclude the thing on the right. It's just not your focus. Um, in the, the title of the article, Manage Process Before People, the way that occurs to me is have sound process in place so that you can then spend your time on people to John and Shira's points. Mm -hmm. And you get the happy circumstance of people know what to expect. They kind of know how to do their job and you don't, don't got to spend as much time fixing problems that come up with the human OS. Right, um, right. So, so it's a both and done in the appropriate balance. You, you just reminded me of Johanna Rothman's quote where she just said, we employ adults. We employ adults. We should treat them like adults. adults yeah. Right? Uh, okay, so I want to thank everybody. This has been a great quick conversation, unstructured and unscripted, but I thought we, we did the topic justice. I will link to the article in the show notes. Uh, once again, I want to thank everyone for tuning in and listening. Uh, Patreon, Discord, blah, 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 blah. Until next time, this is the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out.